This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. I think about 10 to 15 minutes into the flight, there was a, a banging noise, and the GPS on the panel popped out, and the, the cowling was shaking, part of the windscreen cracked, and, and our power dropped to about 1100. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is CFI Trevor Peterson. Trevor is a former Marine Corps tank commander who earned his private pilot certificate in 2018. After that, he banged through his ratings quickly, instrument, commercial, CFI, and today he's going to share a story with us flying in Southern California from John Wayne Airport to Camarillo as an instructor where the engine began running rough over some pretty crowded airspace. Trevor, thanks for joining us on the There I Was podcast. Yeah, Absolutely. So Trevor, your story is interesting because you're the CFI in the right seat of a 172. You've got about 1,200 or so hours uh, total under your belt. A lot of that, though, is in uh, 172 type airplanes and working through your ratings to go eventually to be a commercial pilot someday. But uh, if you don't mind, share your story with us. Yeah, sure. So like you were saying, uh, Richard, it was... uh training flight with a student from uh, John Wayne to Camarillo. We flew the route to Camarillo, fine, did a full stop taxi back to Camarillo, and then uh, and then departed. Uh, I think about 10 to 15 minutes into the flight, there was a, a banging noise, and the GPS on the panel popped out, and the, the cowling was shaking, part of the windscreen cracked, and, and our power dropped. We were running about 2,400 RPMs. It was a new engine, only had about 30, 40 hours on it. So we're doing an engine break-in on it, but the, the power dropped to about 1,100. And when it did, initially pulled the, pulled the throttle back on it to try and ease, ease the vibrations. Uh, and then once I did that, I tried to return it back in to try and reestablish some power. When I did that, it, it just started shaking worse. We only got about 200 more RPMs out of it, and that the RPM needle was kind of waving up and down. So, Trevor, if I can uh, interrupt you with a, a couple questions here. So, share with us, if you will, your student. Like, where was he or she in their in their training? Uh, were they a good student? Sure. You know, as as an instructor, I have learned that. It's the good students that you have to watch out for because as an instructor, sometimes you get complacent, yeah. right? You know, Absolutely. if you're if you're with a struggling student, you're kind of on your toes, right? Yeah. And sometimes you'll find yourself uh, getting complacent with good students. You have to be careful about that. But what was the background of your student at this time? So Brian had just soloed, and we were getting into the into the cross country phase of, of, of training. I think it was our first 
dual cross country. Okay. Actually. So yeah, Brian's a solid student works really hard, but everything that we were doing was new to him. So I, I, in that respect, I was kind of definitely on my toes, definitely involved in kind of every step of, of what we were doing. So from an instructor standpoint, Trevor, this is a busy flight for you because you're teaching uh, cross country with a good student, but he hasn't been cross country before and you're doing it in some really busy airspace. So th- this is going to be a pretty demanding flight for you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the route that we take, we go through LA special flight rules. We're over LAX. And from a perspective of airspace, the uh, position where we were in when we had the started having issues is, is relatively light. It's kind of the kind of quietest, most easygoing portion of the flight. Flip side of that is we were in mountainous terrain and that respect it, it may be quiet airspace wise but as far as um, what's going on below us and, and attention to the kind of those details you're, you're on edge yeah so you'd come out of john wayne you'd navigated through that you know very busy airspace and i think you said you were about over the thousand oaks area somewhere in there when the engine began running rough yeah that's correct okay. about uh what altitude were you we were at 3500 and we were at that altitude kind of setting up to get ready to go through uh, LA Special Flight Rules corridor going southeast bound. So you had just taken off of Camarillo. You're headed towards uh, John Wayne Airport, and you know you're going to get ready for some really busy airspace. Yeah. So you're going through kind of the light. You're up about 3,500 feet or so, going through really the kind of the, the easier part from a navigation airspace standpoint. So you're kind of getting ready for that. Only yeah. about the Thousand Oaks area or so, your engine starts running rough, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what was the weather like? Was that a factor at all? The weather wasn't a factor. The weather was good in Camarillo. On route was fine. But it's it's kind of funny this time of year. Uh, and in May, you get the marine layer right off the shore. So it was a concern. And it's almost to a point where I made a no-go decision on the flight. And it was kind of, we were back and forth on it. And then we, we did make the go decision. And then everything was really really nice on route. It was working out fine. Okay. Weather really wasn't a factor for you. What time of year was this? It was on May 31st. Was it morning time? It was actually the evening. Okay. So we departed about 5.30, 6 p.m. from John Wayne. So it was a late, late afternoon, early evening flight. Okay. Nice. So you're, you're keeping your eye on your weather, but weather turns out good. So you climb up to 3,500. So at 3,500, that's rolling kind of hilly terrain. So you're, you're kind of anywhere from maybe 500 to 1500 AGL as you're going through these, uh, this section. Uh, yeah. I'd say closer to the 1500, 2000. Okay. Range, but really not, not very high uh, at all. Yeah. Okay. And so pick it up from there, please. The engine starts running rough. And you said the first thing you thought, and really heavy vibration, and it's a new engine, yeah. um, which is kind of, we'll talk about that, this um, uh, infant mortality, as as it's called, for engines. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you pull it to idle, yeah. and that, that doesn't really help, right? It eased the, the intensity, the vibration, and it, it, it lessened it to an extent. It was still vibrating <laughs> more than it should be, right? Yeah. And at that point, I, I, I put the power back in to kind of see if maybe we had eased some complication or, or, or whatever was wrong with it. And it started to, you know, just go back to the way it was it was running. Yeah. And I, I think at that point, we noticed that the, the oil pressure had, had just dropped on it. Mm. So 
Who was flying when the engine began running rough? Fairly certain Brian was. And yeah. then really the, the second that it, it popped and it started shaking, it took controls. And, you know, typically a positive exchange of controls and, and all that. I think in that moment, it was just Brian knew that it was on me and I was taking over entirely at that point. Yeah. Talk to us about that from the CFI perspective. So, you know, it's going to be a busy flight. You're getting ready to go on some busy airspace. You're cruising along. He's flying. You're obviously doing a lot monitoring. The engine starts running rough. Is this a part of your pre-brief with students? Do you tell them, okay, in case of an, an emergency, you know, I'll take the airplane or you keep flying it until I take it? Or how do you, how do you brief that? That's pretty much a, a, a day one lesson. You teach students the, the safety briefing, the pre-takeoff briefing, all that. And it's reviewed, you know, over and over again. As far as training is concerned, I'm, I'm always, as a CFI, I'm always PIC and I'm always going to take over in the event of an actual emergency. And, and you, like I said, you, you teach these good habits of positive exchange controls and all that. And in that instant, when it did happen, it was just immediately assumed. There was no, no discussion. Mm-hmm. He knew that I was, I was taking over at that point. I think that's an important aspect of when you're flying uh, with somebody. And this is especially when you're doing like uh, an endorsement or a biannual flight review or something mm-hmm. where you make it clear. And, and I'll usually tell them, hey, you're always flying the airplane until I take it. Mm-hmm. So in case of an emergency, you're still flying the airplane until I take it. But when I do take it, I want to see your hands off the controls and, you know, very positive transfer there. So it sounds like that happened largely due to the fact that you had discussed it earlier and said, hey, in the event of emergency, I'm taking the airplane. He knew that was going to be the case. And he also probably saw and felt you just take control of the situation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so... Then from that point, you pulled the power back, it helped a little, but you tried to push it forward to get more thrust and that just made the situation worse. The oil pressure's dropping, pick it up from there. Yeah, so at that point, I put the power back in, just again, went back to running as poorly as it was prior to. And it was kind of, at that point, I knew I was in an emergency situation and my initial thought was we were gonna try and divert somewhere. and tried to get Brian to to be as helpful as he could. And I asked him to kind of find Van Nuys on a map. And he was just kind of unsure of exactly what I was asking. So I kind of knew it was, it was on me to figure out what was going to happen. And I started looking for Van Nuys as a, as a potential diversion airport and just quickly knew that it was, it was unrealistic. And we were, we were going to land within a two mile radius of where we were at that time. Mm. Were you on flight following at this point? Yes. Yeah, we were with SoCal okay. Approach. And uh, part of knowing I was diverting, knowing that we were having an issue, I remembered the moment of panic. And I put out a Mayday call. And, and that's really all I said was, was Mayday twice. And, and SoCal came back over and they said, aircraft, aircraft transmitting Mayday call. You know, what's your call sign? What, what's going on? And that was kind of the, the height of the panic state and I keyed out said 99 uniform engine out and then I also remember explicitly the moment after I said that it was just complete calm and it was just executing I knew I knew what we were doing and I knew what, what was going to happen 
Yeah. And so what did you do from there? You said you thought this thing was going down within two miles. You Then you were still running, it sounds like, but your oil pressure had dropped. So you know it's a, when that oil pressure goes to zero, it's going to seize, right? So, yeah. And you, it sounds like you knew that was coming. Yeah. You make your mayday call. Then what? What did you do from there? Are you, are you establishing best glide? Were you looking around for just looking at? It just doesn't look like you'd find a lot of places to put it down there in terms of fields or open yeah. places. Yeah. So best glide was the first thing I set up. I, I, I did pretty much full trim down deflection, which kind of sets you up pretty well in the, the 172. Um, and then I was, I was looking at places to land. And in that area, there was a golf course below us that was just really windy. There were a lot of trees. And I kind of considered that there was a lake that was really, really pretty small. And then there was a 101 was kind of the three options that I was, I was weighing. And traffic was surprisingly really light that evening. And I've kind of gathered that that was the, the best option to give us a chance for survival and considered that while we may may put people on the ground at risk, it, it was light enough that I, I felt I had a had a good opportunity for you know the best possible outcome, risking minimal people on the ground and kind of keeping us alive in the situation. Yeah. So once again, just a crowded place. So there wasn't mm-hmm. any really good options. So you're trying to balance all the factors of not making your emergency somebody else's crisis. And I, I really believe strongly in that point. And also finding a place where you can put the aircraft down, where you know you you guys inside the aircraft will be okay. So all of that stuff is very quickly going through your mind, and because of the light traffic on the 101, you decide, hey, this is this is probably the best option. Different day, different traffic, maybe a completely different option, right? But but yeah. given what you saw, that was your best option, which turns out turned out to be a very good yeah. choice. But. I'm getting ahead of you here, but um, <laughs> so uh, you mentioned you said trim down. So talk to me about establishing the best glide in the 172. It sounds like you have a, a technique for that. Oh, uh, nose up trim. Uh, you rotate Full the wheel, nose up trim. wheel down. Yeah, okay. So nose up trim, right? Okay. So you're, so you basically, if you have an engine out scenario in a 172, you go full nose up trim and that'll get you pretty close to best glide. It usually puts you, puts you close. Sometimes it puts you a little bit slower. It just depends on the you know, on the aircraft itself. Yeah. So I, I, I don't remember if it was full down, but it is, it is pretty much rotating the wheel all the way down, gives yeah. you 60, 65. And if you're slow, you just rotate nose down a little bit more. Okay. So when you decide on the 101, how high were you and how far away was it at that point? I'd say we were about maybe 2,900 to 3,000 when we made that decision. So you're, yeah, AGL-wise, you're... 2,000 AGL at best, I'd say. And so was it a factor of making sure you could glide to get there, or you had plenty of uh, glide range to get there? It was more setting yourself up in the optimum position on the freeway. Pretty much. We were right on top of the point that we touched down at. And, and talking about weighing options, I remember there were, I want to say, three sections of the 101 that I was looking at. And the one that I picked, for whatever reason, just stood out to me. And I looked at the going northbound, and (laughs) for whatever reason, southbound just seemed like the best option. Looking back on on it, that was probably the least calculated thing that I thought about. I just looked down, and I saw a portion that I I liked for whatever reason. 
And we had, we had plenty of glide distance. So we really flew almost a standard traffic pattern down to the point that, that I selected. And did you land with the southbound traffic or against it? How'd you handle that? Yeah, with it. Okay. And that was that was something that was going through my mind immediately as soon as we were we were going down. I knew if I selected the one on one I would go with traffic. It was just a matter of, of what segment and, and whether I wanted to go northbound or southbound. <laughs> so the good news is you selected somewhere to land right underneath you so you could set yourself up for a pattern that felt really familiar to you in terms of uh, your altitude and your speeds. Mm-hmm. And the thing that can be tricky about a highway, though, is power lines coming across it, you know, maybe not so much a factor on a freeway, but bridges, road signs, light poles, right? You're probably just scanning like crazy for all those kind of obstacles. Absolutely. The two big considerations in the section that we took were, we, we were between two overpasses and there was multiple overpasses underneath us in the segments that I was kind of evaluating. And uh, I believe power lines were, were kind of running parallel to the freeway in the segment that we, we selected. And not too many road signs. But I do remember when, when we crossed, because I picked a segment between two overpasses. Every segment that I was looking at was, was between overpasses. Mm-hmm. And when we crossed the first overpass, starting the segment I was in, I think we were probably two, 300 AGL. And at that point, I, I pulled the mixture and the prop stopped windmilling at that point and went full flap deflection. I actually put it in a, a forward slip for a moment, too. And we just kind of dropped down as, as fast as we could into that segment I'd selected. Yeah, because you're trying to get it in between these two overpasses, right? So it's no yeah. longer about stretching a glide with best glide speed. It's about you've you found the place to land. It's about the optimum position and speed for the landing. Yeah, exactly. And making sure that we touch down before reaching the, the second overpass. Were there any cars? Did you have to worry about like trying to fit in between cars or tell us about the traffic and if there was any or how they reacted? It was fairly light. I remember there were about, I want to say four cars in vicinity of kind of the area where we were, were shooting to touch down. And what I tried to do once I got low enough and I knew I could put it down relatively quickly was level out for just a moment to try and give drivers on the road some some situational awareness that we were you know in the area and just kind of floated it for a moment you know i can't remember how i timed it but but after we floated for a moment just pushed it down and got it on the ground again just trying to get it down as as fast as possible and uh so tell us what it's like landing on a freeway i mean how'd the (laughs) landing itself go (laughs) uh you know it was it was pretty smooth (laughs) actually I do remember the nose wheel touching down pretty abruptly, so not not the uh, ideal soft field landing. But it was it, it was smooth and rolling out. I, I I don't know if in the moment, but I remember telling Brian either then or afterwards that I, I've played through this scenario in my head probably a million times, right? And and you're rolling down the freeway thinking of all those times that you you've thought about making emergency landings. But I, I remember the most surprising thing and when i look at the uh or go on like news outlets and stuff everybody says you know cars are still zipping by you and <laughs> kept having cars pass by us on the left and uh that that was just the most amazing thing to me was <laughs> people did not care at all the plane that just landed in front of them they were just trying to keep going down the 101 
get on about their day. Yeah, yeah exactly. So tell us about that. When you landed, you're rolling out. Uh, did you like move over to the right side? Did you did you pull it off the freeway? How how much work did you put into trying to keep it off the road so that you know traffic could resume? I was trying to push it to the right as as best as possible, you know, while being kind of cautious. At that point, I didn't want to clip the wing on something and then have a spiral or right. or whatever. So I got it to the right as best I could. And kind of another kind of funny point about that is is when uh, you know my boss, the owner, came. He's like, he didn't put a scratch on the plane, even though the tires aren't bald. And really, that that attributed to I just kept the plane rolling. Um, I didn't want to slam on the brakes or stop too abruptly in case someone was behind us or whatever. I didn't know what was going on. But we rolled maybe for a good half mile, a mile down the road. And, and when we finally did stop, we, we just sat there for a moment. And then CHP pulled up behind us. And at that moment, we jumped out. And we, we had rolled right up to... <laughs> Uh, what's called the the Reyes Adobe exit, and um, you know, once CHP showed up, <laughs> there was kind of a moment of what now. Uh, but then we just pulled pulled the tow bar out and started towing it up uh, the Reyes Adobe off ramp. And uh, it's it funny, CHP was helping us, and uh, we heard you know the fire department coming, and CHP says, <laughs> "Great, here comes the heroes," and the, these <laughs> these fire trucks come down the Reyes Adobe exit, and the CHP is all pissed off because now they're blocking the the way that we're trying to get the plane up. But, uh, you know, CHP and the LA County Fire helped us. And we just pushed, pushed the plane up the, up the off-ramp. Okay. So you push it up the off-ramp. Sounds like almost within minutes of you, of you rolling out. So now the freeway is pretty much unblocked mm-hmm. and you've got it over there. So here you are, you, you just survived, you know, an engine failure, um, survived landing on the 101 and, uh, you push it off and you're talking to the police and the fire. And now what, what'd you do from there? The the first thing I did was I I called my boss and and he pretty much said he's on his way. I think the next call I got was from the NTSB and the FAA. So we were, we were just kind of, I guess, isolated and on this side street at that point. And we were just surrounded by people, and I was just kind of standing in the middle, taking call after call from, like I said, FAA, NTSB, calling me multiple times. But yeah, from the point of touchdown on, I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't. Know. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was all it was all new to me. There's, there's not a manual for that. It's no. You can look in the POH, but it's nowhere in there. Yeah, free, <laughs> so, uh, freeway landing operations. <laughs> yeah. So if we can, let's back up a little bit, Trevor, and talk about. So first of all, uh, just congratulations on handling that situation and all the things that were going through your mind in relatively short order. And the decision you made was obviously the right one for that time of day and that circumstance in the 101. What was your student doing at the time? So you take control of the airplane. You're trying to think through your options. What was your student doing at the time? He was he was doing the best he could to help out. He was trying to spot points on the ground. He was making recommendations. He was doing everything he could to try and be helpful. And for the most part, I, 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 I was on my own. And I was, I was working through things to the best of my ability. Mm-hmm. And he was, like I said, trying his best to help out. He kind of panicked a little bit before we touched down. But really, to be honest, I was kind of shut off. Yeah, I, I was, you were focused. Yeah, yeah, 
aviate, navigate, communicate. I was just aviating at that point. Yeah, which isn't a bad thing. You've got all the help you need. You know where you're going to put it down. There's no other distraction you need. You're you're focused, right? So that, in my mind, that's not a bad thing. Yeah. You know, it's um, when you have that help in the cockpit, I think it's helpful to remember help is determined by the receiver, yeah, yeah. right? And in this case, you're you're the receiver. And, you know, there have been some cases where people were trying to help and it ended up being a distraction to the pilot. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes the best case is for them to sit there, maybe anticipate, think through in their mm-hmm. own mind, but be ready to respond to your inputs or things they see going awry. But there's a lot to be said about, you know, stay out of the way. So, yeah. Sounds like he was reading that situation pretty well. He he was like I said, he was he was doing everything he could do to help out. But really I, I knew exactly what I was doing after the first twenty seconds of, of something going wrong. And anything he, he really said was I, I heard him, but yeah. the, the point at which I was making considerations to change anything I was doing had passed and, and it was just about executing my plan. Yeah. So I want to go back a little bit and talk about, you had mentioned when it first happened, when the engine first started running rough, there was a little bit of panic Mm -hmm. in you. And that to me is intriguing because, I mean, you're a tank commander. (laughs) You know, you're you're very well qualified in stressful conditions, handling machinery. And yet, despite that, despite all your training as a CFI and all the training you'd given to students about engine Mm -hmm. failure and all that, when it actually happened to you, there was a couple seconds there of, you know, kind of, oh my gosh, uh, panic, as you described it. And then you kind of take a deep breath, you let your training, you sort of take control of the situation mentally. Talk to us about that reaction and then, um, you know, how you handled it. Yeah, so I guess it's kind of funny, you know, Marine Corps, everything that we do is is training for war, right? And, And I remember, you know, when I was a second first lieutenant and we were doing these training exercises, you know, every time you go out, it's always kind of the prevalent thought, you know, I'm never going to use this. This is the stuff we're doing is excessive. And then you meet guys with experience who are, are telling you to take it seriously. So you, you try your best to, you know, put yourself in the situation, put yourself in the mindset, but it's always kind of in the back of your mind. Like, is this really going to happen? And I think that's kind of the same when you're training with students, when you're doing emergency procedures, you know, it's in the back of the student's mind. What, why are we doing this? And, and until you're in it, the situation, it's kind of something that this will never happen to me. And in that moment, it was kind of like a, in that panic moment, it's like this questioning, is this really happening? I can't believe this is happening. Mm -hmm. And you're going through that. And once you just accept the situation, then it's just about training. It's about executing what you've done over and over again, always with that kind of seed of doubt that it'll ever will happen, that you've executed it so many times. You know what? That, I love the phrase that you just used, accept the situation. Mm -hmm. So it seems like from your experience, there's a couple seconds in there where you're just accepting, okay, yes, my engine did Mm -hmm. fail. This is the situation. And that's why I think in my Air Force training and other training Mm -hmm. that I've had in general aviation, we factor in a startle period for just exactly what you're Mm -hmm. talking about. It seems like no matter how well trained and prepared you are, when it actually happens to you, you're going to go through this couple seconds where you're like, what is going on? Is this really happening? Yeah. Okay. A couple seconds before you accept the situation and then, you know, let your training mm-hmm. kick in. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, I was reading through, through emergency procedures 
one of the things that said said in there was what can kill people sometimes that they they don't accept the reality of the situation, and they try and do things outside the limitations of what what can happen given the the circumstances. So to your point, training people to go through that startle period and accept whatever situation they're in is, is extremely important. Yeah, and I think accepting the options that are available to you, not the options that you want, yeah. <laughs> the options that are available to you, right? And I think that's where people get in trouble is when they, for example, we've seen this in general aviation, when they're uh, they're lost their engine or something and they're establishing a glide and what they really want to do is make it to the airport or make it to this open field. Mm -hmm. And they don't accept the reality that you don't have the airspeed or the glide ratio to do that. That's not a realistic option. So peel back into the circle of realistic options, not the circle of desired options. Mm -hmm. right? right. Yeah. And it sounds like that's kind of what you were going through is you didn't want to land on the 101. Yeah. But it was really the only good option of the options you had available to you. Right. Yeah. So the I want to talk a little bit about landing on highways and techniques there. I was up in Alaska doing some bush flying and we were in a pacer. And in Alaska, it's legal to land on the highways and I wanted to land on the highway for the experience <laughs> of doing it. And the instructor I was flying with said, okay, you know, great. Uh, here's, here's some techniques and things to think about when you're landing on a highway. And one of the things that he mentioned to me that I've never forgotten in case this situation ever presented itself to me was he said, if you're landing behind someone, 100% of the time, they will hit their brakes in a car. So you must allow for that and establish enough spacing to where it's not going to be a factor to you if they hit, if they slam on the brakes, because that's going to happen. And I've never forgotten that. So I wondered, it sounded like that wasn't a factor for your, you, you had plenty of forward space. You weren't too worried about that. Yeah, no, um, there was, there was nobody in front of us and we had, we had plenty of time to, to roll down the freeway. And just to be perfectly honest, I mean, I'm, I have limited freeway landing experience, but that wasn't on my on my mind at the time. Um, but luckily, we didn't have to deal with that situation. And then I also want to talk about infant mortality in engines, what Mike Bush calls infant mortality. And that is that actually, statistically, newer engines are riskier, you know, from that standpoint than older engines that have been flying a while because of this concept of, of infant mortality. It's just, you know, statistically. Now, fortunately, engine outs and engine failures are rare in general aviation. But in your case, you know, you happen to be one of the ones that got hit by this rarity. Did they ever figure out what was wrong with you were in the first 20 hours or so, so you're breaking the engine in. Did they ever figure out what the problem was? Yeah, they did. I think the investigation's all wrapped up, so I, I don't think it's an issue to talk about it. But on the 172, I, there was an old internal oil filter, and they started making adapters to make an external oil filter. So when the engine for that aircraft was overhauled, the shop asked if they wanted to put the external oil filter adapter on, which we opted for. And when we finally took it apart, the adapter hadn't been torqued down enough. And you could see that the seal, where the seal started getting pressure from it being too loose and the pressure building up behind it, and it eventually just blew through that seal. The torquing on the external adapter loosened up enough that that pressure built on the seal and it, it failed. And that's, that's kind of a very typical reason why 
uh, younger engines fail, you know, more than older engines because it's like what Mike Bush calls major surgery. Yeah. You know, when yeah. you go in and overhaul an engine and do these things. And there's just a lot of room for human error. Yeah. And so, you know, that's why the uh, that's why that is an issue and why you have to be uh, so careful, you know, with new engines coming out to make sure you break them in properly and, you know, all the all the appropriate procedures there. So kind of interesting that that happened to you. Yeah. And the final thing I want to talk to you about, Trevor, is we talked a little bit about it, but that is as a CFI, having an emergency when you have a student on board, the students flying, but you as the CFI are always in control of the airplane. And I try to make that point early on when I'm flying with students mm -hmm. in that, especially if they're younger students and, and they're new, maybe they haven't soloed. And you explain to them, okay, in the event of emergency, I will take control of the aircraft immediately, you know, show me your hands. Mm -hmm and so forth. As they get more developed in their experience and they've soloed, I'll typically transition and say, okay, in the event of emergency, keep flying the airplane until I take it. Mm -hmm. And then we'll have a positive change of control. Mm -hmm. And then the final situation I usually brief them on is, you know, as they're coming as this is especially when you're doing like tailwheel endorsements and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. is that, hey, uh, you may feel me nudging the controls. This is especially in tailwheels for sure. Mm -hmm. You may feel me on the rudder a little bit. I may nudge your stick here and there, but I'm not flying the airplane unless I tell you I have the airplane. Mm -hmm. So... I think that transfer of positive aircraft control is very important and how you do it and when you do it changes depending on the student, where they are in their training and uh, depending on the situation. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it sounds to me like you guys had relied on briefings that you'd given him previously that he knew if something happens to this airplane, I'm taking control. And you took control of it in such a way that there was no doubt in his mind you were flying the airplane. Yeah, absolutely. There was no question. Like, like I said earlier, it's something we brief from the get-go and given the situation uh, i'm pretty sure he didn't want to fly at that point right yeah um right. but he knew he knew that i was taking over he, he knew what he needed to do and it was just about execution yeah and it sounds like obviously it went really well so congratulations to you, <laughs> you. on handling uh, what could have been a pretty demanding what was a demanding situation but congratulations on a, on a safe outcome for you your student the airplane people on the ground nice job trevor thank you thank you okay trevor is there anything that we haven't talked about any points you wanted to stress i think one other big point that i when i was talking to the faa investigator you know he they were all glad with the outcome and one thing the investigator said, he's like, you know, I'm not really a big fan of, of freeway landings, but you did the best you could with uh, the circumstance you were in. And, and one thing that kind of stood out to me that was going through my mind that I picked up in the military was that a 70% solution executed violently now is better than 100% solution after it's too late. And that's just kind of something that, that I've always thought about when I kind of rehashed the event was that I just picked a solution to the problem and went with it 100 percent, as opposed to and again what we we're talking about earlier is accepting the situation you accept the situation and you just act on it you don't wait to come up with a better answer once it's too late boy that's a great point trevor i'm glad you brought that up and that is don't spend too much mental energy on the perfect solution mm -hmm. find one that's going to work and then focus like you did i mean it sounds like you were really focused mm -hmm. on execution and uh, that's what you did so well. And so you look back and, you know, think, oh, well, could you have done this? Could you have done that? Well, well maybe. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I did do this and it worked out 
well. So that that's a great point. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing your story with us, Trevor. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, nice job, Trevor Peterson. There's some great lessons learned that came out of that, especially for CFIs and how you handle aircraft control, how you brief your students on an emergency, and then what they can do in the student role to help you, importantly, not distract you. And uh, I thought the panic discussion was interesting coming from his background, and yet he still went through a couple seconds of panic and startle factor until, in his words, accept the reality of the situation. And that's what he did so well. So we're glad for that outcome. And Trevor, thank you so much for sharing your story. Alongside our producer, David O'Leary, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Fly safe. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.